0: Welcome to the Growth Leaders Circle, episode one, going from in-house operator to starting your own agency.
1: My name's Anish. I started Bring Rockets about about 13 years ago. Uh, My background was actually running growth for different companies, both full-time and as a consultant, Um, spent 11 years in San Francisco, moved to New York about two years ago, Um, and then about seven years recruiting for clients as well, and started, started spending more time doing that, more and more time doing that, and then sort of refocused uh, the firm that I was running to 100% focus on recruiting instead of doing the actual growth for companies. And that's really all we do these days. Um, We're now up to team of nine. Grace, our host here, is a member of our team. And um, yeah, we basically are an agency that recruits executive level leaders uh, within growth, marketing, product, analytics.
2: so uh, I met Anish here in the in the New York ecosystem since he kind of knows and plugs everyone all together. Uh, so grateful for that. Um, my background has been like everybody else uh, on the in-house side, um, very uh, entrepreneurial type of positions where I was always selecting them based on the ability to go in, uh, start something from scratch and kind of own that. So Aeropostale, I started all their. I was at a Another firm in DC that I went to, Aeropostal, started all their e commerce, ran that, grew that to 40 million in one year. Uh, went over to Ralph Lauren to launch and build uh, a lot of their digital uh, here and globally. And then I launched a Groupon competitor, um, grew that to number two in Europe, number three globally behind Groupon and Living Social, um, managing um, a very large budget and uh, building a team of uh, 12 marketers. Uh, New York, Paris, London, and, and Milan, um, and then started going down the entrepreneurial route, and we'll get further into this, but um, ended up as an agency founder, now been doing that for uh, four years, uh, focused on um, focused on affiliate um, and also running um, search uh, SEO paid uh, a lot of DTC companies. Just some quick background
3: on me. I, I was an early employee at Zoptoff which is a healthcare startup based in New York City. Um, That company ended up being 500 plus people um, and moved off of ZocDoc uh, to Intuit, where I was an in-house marketer for just under four years. Uh, One thing I clearly observed at a company like Intuit is they relied and spent, they relied very heavily on agencies and spent quite a bit of money. And so I realized I was uh, probably in the wrong business. So I launched an agency Uh, While I was still employed with Intuit as a nights and weekends type thing, uh, through the agency uh, in 2019, ended up getting acquired by Power Digital, a private equity uh, owned agency. And I joined there as a chief strategy officer and I'm uh, still working with them today.
2: Hey
4: guys, uh, excited to be here. Also exciting to see familiar folks in the audience. Hi Vincent, hi Lomit. Uh, and uh, I met Anish when I was in New York a few years ago. Uh, worked a lot in gaming, had three exits. Be, was very, very fortunate to have worked with three, you know, a lot of big names in gaming. Started off, from, uh, started off as a consultant about a year and a half ago, but there's just so much demand that I grew to an agency. with six people, fully remote. Uh, I'm in Barcelona right now. But uh, again, like I said, fully remote, so we can go where we want. Uh, Also run the podcast, Mobile User Acquisition Show. Anish has been on it. lomit has been on it. So if you are interested in mobile and acquisition, feel free to check.
0: Did you have seed clients, or how did you manage to acquire your first customers?
4: I can start, perhaps. Uh, I would say, you know, my sales esteem was so low when I started that I... I did, of course, email all my friends and uh, I did email all my friends and say, hey, guys, I'm starting out. If you have leads, send, it, send them to me. Uh, but the first client I got was my buddy's girlfriend. She ran an e-commerce brand and I basically, and she was just super hesitant to start spending. And I was like, okay, pay me $1,000 a month plus a revenue share of any uplift you see. Uh, that was my pitch to her. And she just said, yes, just because it was not doing so well. And really for me, this was just a foot in the door thing. And it did, for me, this was just more of a confidence building thing than anything else while I could get to my second and third client which came through referrals, right? And this, uh, this first seed client actually lasted for more than a year. The crazy thing is, like I said, this is my buddy's girlfriend. They eventually broke up and she didn't pay our last invoice. So, you know, but I think it was, it, I think that was uh, uh, worth the start I got, worth the learnings I got, and the start I got thanks to this seed client I had.
3: I'll, I'll jump here, in here as well. Uh, the first um, client that I received was through just me socializing and letting people know that I was interested in doing this. Um, And I think people started to see me more as curious than this full-fledged business or agency. And so they were much more receptive to giving me introductions. And one of the first meetings I had was with a company called Casper, which is the mattress company. And I was so interested in just kind of getting my foot in the door. I told the founders at the time, it it was just a few guys and the team wasn't very big. I think it was less than 10 people. I said, hey, I'll do my first project for you for a mattress, right? And then also I started to to take on more clients and I would charge a dollar just so I could get a contract in the door and just start um, Getting these really, you know, strong brands uh, that I was able to reference. And so I mean of my first clients, it was American Eagle, Casper um, Uniqlo, things like that, which was just from, you know, socializing that I was interested in doing this and um, reducing the friction and the onboarding process and getting over that first hump.
1: One, one other thing I'd add in is like, with, early, with early, one, of the, one of the areas I see a lot of people doing when they kind of jump out to, to start their own agency or consulting operation is they really pre-package all of their services into this like really neat, neat bucket and say, here's my services, here's my services. And then when, when founders or CEOs look at it, they'll be like, well, we don't need this exact service. So therefore, the way you've packaged it isn't perfectly according to our needs. Um, and so what I did was basically go in and like ask, ask founders and CEOs, what exactly do you need? What, what's falling apart? What's underperforming? What's overperforming? Where, where are the holes in your organization? And they would tell me, Oh, well, here's, here's our three biggest problems. Great. I'll do that for you. I didn't know what I was doing 50% of the time. I would just figure it out as I went. Um, sometimes the CEOs would under, would realize I didn't know what I was doing, but other times they had no clue that I had no idea what I was doing, but either way, um, it was a way to get contracts in the door without any friction because it's an amazing sales process when you get someone to tell you exactly what they want and you say, done, all right, I'll do that for you. And at a really cheap price, here you go. Um, so that's another thing that I kind of noticed helped me get in the door with a lot of companies. Just basically take whatever they needed at a price point
2: that made it so they couldn't say no.
0: That's great. Cool. Great. Should we jump to the next one, Grace? Let's do that. Alrighty. So what barriers did you have to break to scale beyond yourself doing all the execution?
5: So I, I can speak to this. Um, I think one thing that's um, Implicit in what we're talking about is, at least for for myself, it there was this middle step of also like working at an agency or being a first. I was a consultant on my own, and then I was working at an agency. Um, so it's certainly not something um, that that I overnight initially um, went from my own craft. Um, to scaling an agency. It, it was in some ways overnight that my agency did start because of a sort of like the the last question about a, a seed client, I had a very unique situation. Um, shout out, one of my clients is on the call right now. Um, but I think that um, the depending on the, the size of the project, there was a point at which I, I have been doing everything on my own first. Um, and and obviously as the work increases, but also just to provide a counterpoint to um, what Anish just said, uh, the kind of bespoke packages that you're talking about, or at least um, being able to make edits to an offering is essential. Um, no client um, wants to feel like they're, getting the same response that anybody else's and every business is distinct on the other hand i do think there's a degree to which that that getting insight of what has worked for other clients is actually part of the offering um and I had an out of body experience of this myself in setting up my agency when I had to work with lawyers and accountants for the first time, and I always use this example of i was I was speaking to um, different lawyers, lots of other small business owners were really helpful in giving me recommendations, and they have crazy hourly rates and then I spoke to an attorney who had a what he called a startup package and it had 10 documents that everybody needs and he had a flat rate for that and the example that I always give people is that it didn't make it any less valuable to me that these were 10 templates that he essentially puts in my my business name Um, but it certainly was very repeatable for him and actually that kind of repetition and package is what it made made it so valuable to me at that time because I didn't know what I didn't know So in terms of scaling, I do think there's this piece of which you want to templatize the parts of the engagement that you can. Um, And we have what I would consider a toolkit. And so we reach into our toolkit and grab the the right one for the right client. But I think one of the value, one of the, the big things that you bring to your client is we have a couple of different ways of tackling the the situation that you're bringing to us. And we have proof that it's worked before because other clients of ours have used it.
3: I think a lot of that is like really great from the the early starts of a business. And for, for me personally, what I had to learn really quickly was I had to stop saying the word scale. I think like the best path forward to get past sort of thinking about scale is just being cognizant and acknowledging the fact that like, I mean, even today, right? Like five years past the start of my agency, I'm still doing a lot of the same stuff that I was doing right when I started my agency. And so you have to know that like, you know what, at the end of the day, the buck stops with you and like you're held accountable for all of the work, right? So like running the finances, I, ha- I unfortunately have to know all the, all the ways to do that. And there is no perfect outsource partner at the end of the day. Um, And so just being kind of like uh, true to yourself and self-aware that like you are the person that's going to progress your agency forward and stop looking for like that silver bullet solution. Um, Sure. You're going to find great people who are going to elevate and and drive your business forward. And there's probably going to be great solutions that you find. Like I remember when I brought bench accounting on, it like blew my mind that it just like took over bookkeeping. And then when I found a CFO and when I found a business partner, like, I kept making gradual steps forward, but I wasn't seeking the solution which I would replace myself, right? And so if you can sort of make progress there, uh, I think you'll likely be um, in a better place than if you're just seeking this you know, uh, solution that eventually makes your life a little bit easier because admittedly, um, this is a hard way to make an easy
2: living. For me, it was a combination of, of, of really two things. Um, So one is, you know, it's a good point you were bringing up about the cash flow positive. So really, you can either be a a really well-off freelancer or you can be an agency owner, right? So the agency owner is the one that maybe doesn't pay themselves with all those initial contracts or when times get lean um, or through coronaviruses. And they're paying their staff and they're hiring people that are better and smarter than them. So, yeah, I ran affiliate in-house for you know a lot of years and grew a lot of you know e-commerce uh, platforms from the inside but I went and hired rock stars from publicists from other places um, and in, in that vein and, and and you know in terms of servicing clients for 20 years they know a lot more than what I'm doing as someone who's coming from in-house like they're able to they're, they have 20 years experience being of service, right? So my job is to be of service to them. Their job is to be of service to the client, and then everything works. And the, the other kind of part where we started to finally see things start to scale up is, um, you know, I had those initial contracts. I was trying to do everything. We weren't going anywhere. And I said, okay, forget it. We're, we, we're, we keep being asked to do affiliate. Let's concentrate on affiliate. So we just just focused on affiliate, that enables you to scale your processes, your learnings, um, where you're speaking, who you're speaking to, content you're putting out, um, and, and really develop an infrastructure. And again, if you're doing it selflessly and, and, and hiring the right people and taking care of them, they're going to grow that. After that grew, now we have a head of affiliate, we have a head of SEO, we have a head of search, we have a head of Facebook media. But that that's like you, you know, it's really hard to do that without first establishing yourself as saying, this is the shop, this is what we do. We can hire 15 people that are following all these processes, and we're training in a very consistent manner to deliver the same service that you know trickles down from you and and your heads would would be delivering um, every day personally.
4: Yeah. I just add something here to build off of what Rebecca said, something that's worked enormously, enormously well for us is doing that exact same kind of templatizing, if that's a word, that Rebecca talked about, but also doing it for our internal processes. That was a you know, game changer for us. Getting, a, we got a project management system, like, right, onboarding, 10 questions, launch checklist, create a strategy, uh, you know, we, we have, Again, this is thanks to an advisor, somebody who who advises, still advises us, basically said, just templatize as much as possible that's internal, so the team can do as much of it without really leaning on you. Uh, And I think that was a huge, huge, huge game changer uh, for us, having a project management uh, tool, having as much as possible that's checklisted and templatized.
2: that, That I think is really important and it's from, a, it's from a different perspective of what you actually need to do from an agency. But if you're going from in-house to founding an agency, like you better be ready to be an entrepreneur. And you know, there, I was very, very comfortable uh, taking a nice fat salary as head of marketing here and there and there. But there are times when I've run this agency, uh, including going through crisis, where I'm like, I'm not gonna pay myself. And if you want your clients to do really well and you want them to refer you, you better hire everyone that it takes um, from senior down to junior to give like really, really high level of, um, of service. And you better be ready to take that entrepreneurial plunge.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of my, my thoughts echo a lot of what everyone else was saying. Um, like if you're going to start an agency and you're actually be successful and your name is on it, your work quality has to be incredibly high and your clients are going to leave you if you're going to just delegate it all out, outsource it all out, like it could show. Um, and so you need to be careful about trying to scale too quickly. And I've seen some people who have started agencies, like really start outsourcing their work to other people who are cheaper, don't have great quality work or really delegate everything down so that, um, you know, they're just strictly the head. Um, and I've just seen that go poorly because their clients leave them um so at the end of the day if you're not going to really dig in and do as much of the work as possible in terms of making sure your customers are successful and your clients are successful it's going to be very difficult and like the timing to scale beyond yourself you have to not necessarily when you just don't want to do the work anymore um when you have to when you have so many clients that to fulfill and you know you need other people there but like I don't think you're, if you're going to make this work, you're you're not ever going to be fully able to just delegate, outsource, and push it all. You can definitely, you can definitely do a lot of the things that Rebecca was talking about, where you have the checklist, you have the documentation, you can really create great processes that help things move faster. But, you know, I think Rebecca really pointed out that that is only going to get to a certain point. And every client is so uniquely nuanced that they all need something so specific and they're going to be coming to you for it. Um, so. I mean, I guess the answer of, of how to do that to do that is when you have so many clients that you absolutely have to, but you know, you shouldn't really try to, 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 to kind of scale beyond yourself in really, really early days. You kind of, you kind of have to do the work or work quality isn't going to be where it needs to be. And you're not going to consistently grow clients. And the best way to grow clients is to have your current clients refer you in, um, to other clients, right? All founders and CEOs all talk amongst each other. It's a very closed world, a very closed network, um, very small networks. So um, and when you get that referral from a current client or a previous client saying, Hey, we had a good experience with these people over here. Your sales process for the next client is going to be significantly faster. So um, yeah, I, I, I think that the way that this question is asked is a way of like how to get out of doing the work as quickly as possible. And like, this is the wrong business to be in. If you're trying to do that really quickly.
0: It's super valuable. I have a comment here in the chat that says have always found it difficult to raising pricing, especially if I'm growing my footprint within a client. If anything, they want a discount as a result.
1: It's been my experience as well. Um, you make it on the next client, you know, you're, you're building your portfolio. You're, you're going to have a pitch deck of, you know, as you keep growing 5 10 15 20 25 wonderful clients and then once you start scaling that up and those logos are in there and you've done a good job you you make that you make it up on the next client your prop, client that you brought on board 4 years ago when you were just starting off like they're probably going to still get that legacy pricing that's been my experience i don't know if you guys have been able to to bump up pricing on really older clients and this will, this
3: will be fast uh, if you're unable to like extract more cash from a client Uh, What you can do is, and you feel like you're giving them a lot of value, is extract other things. So ask for referrals, um, you know, explicitly ask for referrals and even offer them sort of an incentive in doing so. Ask for a case study um, and ask them to be a reference on any new prospective deals that you're getting. It's a way to extract more value from a client without necessarily asking for more cash and it leads to more cash in the future.
2: Just a thought. It's a good one.
5: Yeah, and, and very much in that spirit, I would also say that that's why when you're putting together the um, proposal in the first place, um, well, first of all, let me start by saying that when I started the agency, the, the number one thing that I was asking other agency owners was always pricing, and no matter if I talked to somebody who was new or had been doing it for years, they would always laugh and say, this is the number one question. So, first, let me acknowledge what a, a vital and... Uh, uh, ever-present question it is. So that's why though the anchoring that happens at the front of the engagement, I think some of the things that, that um, others were saying about giving a discount in the beginning um, when you're getting off the ground, that's just the reality of how you're building the business. And and then I think what Anish said is right. I mean, the reality is you're not going to go from charging 50% of your rates to all of a sudden being whole again. But a good piece of advice that I was given is like when you're putting together the value of the package in the first place think through ways of offering additional value to a client if they're if they're negotiating on pricing besides just slashing or giving a a 20 percent discount because as soon as you've done that you've sort of viewed you know you've you've positioned your rates as somewhat imaginary Um, i think that being able to illustrate the difference between price this is is gonna be a little cliche, but the difference between price and value, um, I mean, you either are working with a client who understands it. And and frankly, if you're working with a client who is super price centric, I think it's really important to understand that at the outset, um, because people are not gonna change in that regard. But again, going back to the value, being able to, I, I, I used a home construction analogy with a friend where I said, if you were to go out and hire a contractor for your home, and you were given three proposals um, and and one of them was drastically lower than the other two, is that the person that you would hire to do to work on your home? And she said to me, uh, I, it is the person that I hired to do the construction and now we've been paying a lot of money afterwards. So, I mean, at some point at a rate, I'll say to somebody, if, if you feel confident that somebody else is gonna be able to deliver at that rate, then by all means go with that. Um, But it's important to be able to illustrate the value that comes from having been through some of these scenarios before and actually being able to deliver. How do you
0: optimally partner with vendors for projects with your clients?
1: I feel like Rebecca is the master (laughs) of this. She's got got the vendor relationships (laughs) down. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Uh,
5: It's not anything too groundbreaking, except that I, Prove to them. Uh, to me, I have two categories of clients. Um, I've got my my actual clients, and then the vendors are my clients as well. And I've always said to them, um, I only expect referrals from you to the degree that when you refer them to me, I make your job easier. So, um, you know, it's not it's not uh, very clever, but. Um, this is what we focus on and I try to illustrate that um, we do this little piece of the puzzle better than anybody else can do and there was also a question um, in the chat where somebody asked about um, how technology allows allows you to build tools in-house and I'm very candid with clients about the aspects of their their growth and their marketing that I think is best for them to handle in-house and grow then there's parts that um, no general marketer is going to have the rapid exposure to it. So because I partner with so many of the technology vendors, you know, it's like the day that we're kicking off an engagement, we've just ended too. So even if you're working with the kind of marketer who's been through an SDK integration before, um, have they been through two that concluded last week? So, uh, we just bite off this little part of the, of the pie. Um, and and try to do it better than anybody else.
0: Do you see agencies in the future being able to on-scale growth with leveraging more tech and less people as dependencies?
1: Uh, eventually, if you're big enough. Um, tech. I mean, I think one of the re- reasons a lot of people this is because you don't need to pay for tech uh, and you can build it on your own. You can build it build early, you can build profitably with cash uh, or without having to put any real cash down. So maybe like the big agencies and a lot of the larger later stage agencies have pitched themselves as being highly tech enabled, um, having like AI landing page software, you know, all, unique tracking capabilities and all of that. Um, hear a lot about like the new term being like tech enabled services or uh, so I think there's, I think some of the larger agencies are are able to do that, um, but it's expensive. So I think it's hard for a smaller company, a smaller agency to be able to really incorporate deep tech.
4: Uh, you know, Anish, I would just say, I, I agree that making super complex, crazy analytics is probably hard for smaller agencies. But I would still say, we've been able to do even some of the basic automation, just basic dashboards that go just beyond showing them the Facebook ads manager or whatever the equivalent is in other spaces. I think it's definitely significant value add in putting in some sort of tech in there, even if it's just building some basic dashboards. And we've certainly seen that even as a small agency, that's possible.
1: What was an unforeseen thing that and difficult that you couldn't have really predicted previous to, to jumping off on your own.
5: Yeah, like what surprised you most um, coming to to the to the consulting side versus the in house side? Um, what has surprised you about the reality of that?
1: Um, I would say billing and invoicing is kind of a pain, um, and it's oh, yeah. honestly even more stressful than I assumed it would have been. Um, Especially early on, I was—I think I was maybe confident in the quality of my work. And so I felt like I was doing a good job with, with, with getting clients what they needed. Um, but I was very underconfident in figuring out how to actually get my invoices fulfilled. And so that part ended up becoming stressful when clients would come back and say like, well, and, and you know, I tried a lot of different kind of like models in terms of how to charge based on everyone giving me advice all over the sun. Um, so, you know, I would, I would test out hourly, um, and then, you know, when you give an invoice and, and, you know, let's say you are invoicing for 25 hours a week and the client asks, are you sure it wasn't 20, uh, you know, stuff like that. So that part was always a, a lot more of a men's stress point than I originally could have assumed it was going to be, um, then chasing down delinquent clients, um, I never thought, I never realized how difficult that would be.
4: Anish, uh, out of curiosity, if somebody says, are you sure it wasn't 20? What do you say? Assuming it is actually 25, right? Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead.
1: Depends how much I care about the relationship. Uh, um so, okay. <laughs> depends, uh, let, depends how to, to interesting to scenarios. it is.
4: You, you care a lot. You don't, you don't care at all. What, what, what would be your two answers?
1: Uh, if I do not care at all, I push as hard as possible and say, yes, absolutely. Um, um, and this is, you know, we'll, yeah, we're, we're, we're charging what we're charging. put um, mm-hmm. down um, more often than not, it'll work out the way you want it to. Right? That's what I've looked. Um, if I really want the relationship to go farther, I want to expand with them. I might be like, all right, maybe we meet in the middle on this one, but we're not on the next one. Um, and we sort of figured it out there. Um, yeah. and then that's something I have done before.
3: If someone's fighting you over hundreds of dollars, if anyone walks away from this call with anything, uh, just fire that person as a client, just don't like, like as the just do that. Like don't let anyone ever like just kind of like completely devalue or undervalue your work, right? If, if we're talking hundreds of dollars, it's not worth it. Just say, hey, listen, like um, unfortunately we didn't deliver the value that met your expectations. And clearly we didn't if we're sort of like counting uh, and splitting hairs over a couple hours here and there. Obviously, we wouldn't say 25 hours um, as a lie. We're not in the business of lying. So as a result, I don't think we're the good fit anymore but I'm happy to refer you to a partner that, you know, might be a better fit. Like don't ever getting beat up for a couple hours. (laughs) Sounds miserable.
5: I think in general, it's good advice. I think that, um, one of the reasons I wanted to get into consulting in the first place was I felt like a lack of appreciation when I was an in-house marketer for the, for what I brought to the table. And so I think the thing that's exciting about, um, project work is that you're choosing your partners every time, just as much as they're choosing you. And I know, when I've worked with a great agency, I have felt very lucky to work with them. And so, you know, I always say that we never forget who the client is, but at the same time, there's a level of um, respect that that I think um, we expect. And, and uh, one of the best pieces of advice I ever got was get to know as fast as you can, like as an N-O. And so if you, you know, do whatever you can when you're going through the, procurement process to be able to figure out what kind of partner this is going to be. And if they're haggling with you over a couple of hundreds of dollars when you're negotiating the deal, then they're probably going to be the kind of client who's going to argue over an invoice.
1: You nailed it. The ones who have always taken forever to negotiate us getting started are always the ones who are always just messy human beings to deal with.
3: Yes. 100%, 100%.
1: It was, it was just—it was just very consistent. Um, and a good founder knows that, that. And I think Corey did well. A good founder knows that a couple hundred dollars means nothing in terms of the the you know the trajectory they're trying to do with their company. Um, yeah. And so that's a huge red flag too if they're if they're if they're caring about that and they don't have a really good reason to care about that. They're just haggling to haggle.
4: Hundred percent. And I'll also add one of the best pieces of advice I got which is that sometimes you have to end up working with people who are jerks. I've had to do that because we're like, oh, we have a team, we need the revenue. This person's being a jerk and I'm doing this for the revenue, right? And uh, you know, the best piece of advice I got was in cases like that, just recognize you're doing it for the revenue. Recognize that, look, you're doing it for the short term. Just make that peace with yourself rather than assuming that this relationship is going to get better and fixing it and assuming that this is going to last long term. And uh, i found that extremely helpful when I've had to work with people that aren't necessarily nice to work with, but I just knew I had to
3: sign on the dotted line to
4: get in the revenue.
3: But we also, um, in my previous agency, we instituted the jerk tax Um, where we would charge a 15% increase uh, just for Mm -hmm. jerks. Um, Pre-deal, right? So like as you're negotiating the contract and you just clearly understand that the person's a jerk, but you have to sort of concede for the sake of the revenue, um, they get hit with the jerk tax. I'm
4: gonna steal that phrasing for our team.
3: Yes.
1: Jerk tax. It also makes better when they're being a jerk because you know you're tallying the jerk tax in your head every time you get like a shit mail yeah. from someone, but like, all right, that's another 1% that's going up right here. Um,
4: yes. <laughs> yes, yes,
1: yes, yes, yes. Uh, so it's a good, I think, I think Shamanth <laughs> nailed it. And the way I've, I've sort of thought about it is emotionally disconnecting from certain people. Yes. Um, you know, if they're going to treat you like a number, you treat them like a number right back. Um, yes. um, you know, there's definitely certain people we work with who consider us partners and we, we go to the bat for them and we stir hard for them. And there's other ones who throw fits, do all kinds of crazy stuff, who just have this general mentality way to work with an agency is to beat up on them. And that's how you get the best results. And so if you need them for some reason, like let's say they're a really big name and it looks wonderful on your pitch deck or they're really well-connected, you see that you want to get into whatever that might be. Like, I think Shemuth nailed it with just that emotional disconnect. You just know that it's a means to an end. But you're not going to go you're not going to go to the ends of the earth for them anything anything to add in there rebecca in terms of dealing with very very difficult <laughs> <laughs> clients
5: i'm very lucky we i don't have that but I, one thing i will say is so i talked about my uh my obligations to the clients and my obligations to the technology partners that we work with but i also feel an immense obligation towards my team so I think that something that was a huge priority for me, especially compared um, to environments I've been in the past, was that um, I'm old, like I'm gonna represent them and um, it is a two-way street. And so um, we're very good at what we do. And um, I, like I said before, I, we never forget who the client is, but I would never um, allow for there to be a situation where the team was treated poorly or the rules were not respected um, and I, maybe I've just been lucky or maybe I do think that there's a degree to which we've been able to sniff some of that out during the procurement phase and um, there have been clients a couple of them who we could sense where this was going and we said Unfortunately, we've had a couple of projects come up and we're just not going to be able to take this one and you know we can make a recommendation um, so you know, I hope that everybody is is in a position where um, if they can sense it's coming on early enough they can they can choose other projects. All of our abilities come back to the fact that I'm able to, recruit a team that feels comfortable in this environment and feels happy and feels fulfilled which I won't be able to do if we're working with those kinds of partners so um, if anything it's it's the opposite um, and so we choose to work with like I once had somebody say to me you wouldn't want to work for us I know too much about this part of the business right those are the partners that we want to work with the most because they can appreciate the skill set that we bring to the project. If somebody is completely um, just offloading projects to us they have no sense of what's involved in it. Um, so I think it's been a little self-fulfilling in, in, the, in the nature of the, the projects that we've worked on and we're just
0: we've just been extraordinarily lucky I have to say that. All right let's move on to the next question. How did you know when was the right time to make the jump from in-house to agency? Are there any types of projects that you shouldn't take on even early on? I think we've addressed that, but.
3: So I quit my full-time job um, once I had one-time salary. So I was just working nights and weekends. And once I had one-time salary, uh, that was my target. And then uh, projects you shouldn't take on, Um, are those that you just know are going to be time wasters, right? So you have to evaluate the opportunity costs and just make sure that you're not like the red flag for me is always the type of client that says something like, oh, if you do this, then like, if you, you know, like, let's do this thing now. um, Or if it's a client that told me that they are um, trying to completely like crack the nut on a really difficult or challenging project, a problem that I know a full-time employee couldn't solve and they want to do it for one 20th of a rate of a full-time employee. Uh, Those I won't take on either because just nobody will ever, um, ever solve that problem. And you're just going to get beat to death on it.
1: Great point. Yeah. I mean, I I alluded earlier to like when I first started, I took on whatever projects ask of me or whatever they needed. And so I didn't really have, have any any guardrails to say no. Uh, and then eventually it, it definitely got overwhelming. I think if I would have done it again, I would have started saying no earlier on and putting really better guardrails on projects. And I saw the other side of that where it keep, I kept on doing like whatever you need of me, whatever you need of me, whatever you need of me. That was actually bad for business and bad for me uh, in, in general. So I think, I think Corey figured that out a lot earlier on than I did.
2: We've, we've built, uh, it's, it's been more dashboards. Um, we are working with someone who's, um, data scientists who have built some AI products to see how those can factor into, um, real time LTV projections on, um, acquisition by channel. Um, but it, it, it's more, it's. It's it's through through partnerships versus again at this size agency trying to build something like that uh, ourselves.
5: Yeah, I think what what Shaman said before about um, your processes operationalizing those—that's how we use tech. And I I think the question of humans versus machines, I think it like makes for great articles. But to me, it's 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 pretty clear in most cases, what's best handled by a system versus what's best handled by a person. Um, if anything, many of the clients that I work with are over-relying on their instinct when it comes to running tests that we have the tools to tell us um, what you know, to A-B test. Um, and I think that it's the, the analysis of those that, um, or the insights that we wanna add on top of it that should come from the humans, or even knowing what it is that we wanna test in the first place. Um, so similarly, in terms of what we automate at Notable, it's much more about um, being able to give real-time updates to our clients, um, and it's the parts of our process that slow us down and not the actual work itself.
3: And for us, I mean, uh, in my agency, pre-acquisition, we had some software, and we, we fully believe that software or tech will allow us to scale. But at the end of the day, it probably was more of a, um, a sales tool, right? Like being able to differentiate in a pretty commoditized space is probably the most advantageous thing of having some tech. Um, and then post-acquisition, we we joined an organization that... Um, had a bunch of tech themselves. And, you know, my agency previously was uh, 10 full-time employees and, and maybe five or 10 contractors. Uh, but then moving to a 100-plus person organization, organization, um, I can clearly see how technology um, can, can create scale and efficiencies across the board at a team that size and also become much more attractive um, for investors and then also for as a sales tool as well.
5: Yeah, Corey, you just said something um, that I'm, I'm going to go rogue, Anish. I'm going off the agenda, but I thought you just said something that um, I have a question for some of the other panelists, which is going from um, in-house to agency, there was a little bit of, I would say, hubris I had of, okay, I've just spent a uh, 12 years managing agencies and one is worse than the next. And um, I'm gonna come out there now and be the ultimate consultant because I know what I liked and what I didn't like. And all of a sudden when I was in that room presenting to clients for the first time, I remember that the things that were the biggest challenges were not what I had anticipated. In other words, they maybe it was not as easy as they made it look, but I think that, um, What's involved in consulting or or advising? Um, some of the some of the sizzle or the or the splash of like a deck or a tool that you're using um, impacts the degree to which the information I'm sharing is absorbed. And um, I wondered if similarly you had some of those learnings when you moved over to the dark side of like, wow, this, the thing that is so difficult is not the thing that I thought it was gonna be, but it actually, this is what's most difficult.
1: I think I knew w- when I was leaving my well, one no, full-time job I had a long time ago um, that it was just better for my personality type. I was I'm horrible with authority as well, across every sense of like my entire life. Like I have been terrible boss. I don't do what they tell me to do. I do whatever I want. And like, I just, when I, when I got my first consulting client, that's when it clicked, I, that I learned that I really liked the consulting client relationship more than boss employee relationship. Um, so just for my personality type, who isn't someone who sort of like looks to someone else for what the right decision is, or like wants to defer to someone else's decision. And for better or worse, I'm going to always think I'm right. And, uh, you know, unfortunately when I'm I'm wrong very, very frequently, but um, it just worked well for my personality. So luckily I learned that early on that that consulting client relationship where you can go in really quickly, you know, push incredibly hard with very little information on as far as you should do. And hearing like founders and CEOs say, oh, you think I should do that? Great. I'm going to go do that. That was huge for me, where in my full-time roles, my bosses really care what kind of strategic recommendations I offered. It was just like, do your job and kind of like, just do it. Um, you know, we don't really want to deal with all this other stuff that you're pushing pushing our way. So I think it was that first consulting gig I got. I was like, that, that clicked for me. Like, this is me. Um, I don't want a boss um, and I don't do bosses. So.
4: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, this reminds me, I think Vincent, who's actually on this call, he, I think you told me many years ago that one of the things you liked is about consulting was everybody would listen to you and they wouldn't listen to their in house employees, right? And the in house employees would come and say, oh my God, I've been telling them this exact same idea for six months and they weren't listening. But you, as a consultant, came in, told me this, and they just listened to you right away, uh, which it's ve- which I've found to be very true. It's, I just get a lot more respect as a consultant than as an in-house person.
1: It's fascinating. Like, I've, I think when someone's mid-level in a role, reporting into like, let's say a director, senior director, um, that that like director, senior director, VP doesn't want the person, bl- them to be the best strategic recommendations because it almost makes them look bad that the person who's getting paid significantly less is coming up with all these strategic recommendations like the whole mentality is that like if you're at that you know mid to senior level role the the, the strategic direction should be coming downward not upward and then if you're hiring consultant you sort of want that person to be as strategic as possible because it makes you look good like Look at this genius idea I had to bring in this expert consultant from the outside who's, who's so, so good. at. It. And then if that consultant is unsuccessful, it actually makes you look bad. So you're going to like open up all these doors for the consultant that you didn't open up for your internal employees who report to you, which is kind of terrible. But um, that was sort of what, I, what I noticed as well, that they were opening up doors for me that they didn't open up.